Welcome to Beyond the Seminar, where each week I have a conversation with a real-life scientist visiting the UC Davis Biomedical Engineering Department Seminar Series. I'm Randy Carney, an Assistant Professor of Biomedical Engineering here at UC Davis. Today I'm joined by Dr. Sarah St. James, an Associate Professor of Radiation Oncology at the University of Utah, where she works to develop improved methods to treat cancer patients with radiation. Dr. St. James actually graduated from our own department here at UC Davis, obtaining her PhD in the lab of Professor Simon Cherry in 2010. Now, she and her team focus on a new modality of radiation therapy called proton therapy, which is becoming more and more common, especially for the treatment of pediatric cancers. Here we go. chatted with a student I was put in touch with on Tuesday who started his undergraduate career at the same place I did, which was the University of Waterloo. Mm. I dropped out after one year. <laughs> it was not for me. I decided engineering was not for me. And I went and I worked midnight shifts in a factory and then decided maybe I should do an education. But, wow. um, but it was, he had never met somebody who was successful, but had stepped away. Is that where you're from? Are you from Canada? Yeah, I'm from out by Ottawa. So I grew up five miles outside of a town of 200. Wow. What was that like? It was awesome. Um, I had a summer job where I worked at a summer camp. After high school, every day I'd go skiing or snowboarding. I worked at the local ski hill, which was very small. Um, but, And I grew up with lots of cousins. I'm sixth generation from where I'm from. Wow. Um, my mother knew where I was every single weekend and who I was hanging out with. A Monday could easily be a, oh, I didn't know you were friends with the S.H.I.E.L.D. children. And it was like, okay, my mother just got the report on my whole weekend. <laughs> Do you go back a lot? No. No? No. It's been really hard with the pandemic. Yeah. Do you ever think about like, I mean, you know, sixth generation, is you're breaking that, that now? Or, or is your long-term plan kind of get back there eventually or... No, I'm really happy doing this. I wouldn't have had any of these opportunities if I'd stayed there. I could have been a teacher. I could have been maybe a doctor or a nurse, but I couldn't have gotten to do this level of work or have this type of life. You have siblings? None. Yeah. Okay. So you're only child growing up there. So how did you, when did science enter the picture? Oh, um, so I'd said that when I was, I started university and I'd worked midnight shifts in a factory and in Canada, I could still pay for a lot of my school myself. So I worked as a maid at a four-star hotel. I had all of these jobs. And one of my undergraduate professors realized that I was getting really great grades in his labs. And he really asked me to apply for a research award. So in Canada, they have these Natural Science and Engineering Research Council awards. So I applied for one of those and I got to do research as an undergraduate, actually an ultrasound. And so that was when I really got into science. I think at that point, I still thought I'd be a high school math teacher. Hmm. And when it came time to apply for either teacher's college or graduate school, the same mentor really pushed me towards graduate school in medical physics. So backing up before college, were you interested in science and math in high school and stuff? Oh, absolutely. That was always your favorite? It was, it was the sort of thing where I think with science and math, there's a right answer and it doesn't matter how you got to it. And uh, there's many ways sometimes to get to the right answer. And I think that was something I really appreciated. It didn't require 
memorization. It just required kind of a deep understanding. And I think it also is something that in many aspects of my life, I like that practice makes us better at it. And I think science and math is really something that lends itself to those of us who like to practice to get better at things. Were your parents um, acclimated to science or anything like that? Um, my mother not. She was she worked at a hospital as an administrator. Um, my father was a lab tech in chemistry. Mm. So he knew about science, but he wasn't necessarily doing science at this level. And then I think even um, when I started looking at grad school after my undergrad, I think the family feeling was that maybe I should just go get a job. <laughs> Did they like push you into, uh, or did they have expectations for what your job would be? Or was it always like, you're going to college, you're going to do this? Or was it just hmm. whatever you want? It was more hmm, whatever you want. Um, I think at some level there was an expectation to contribute to society in whatever way that meant. Um, but one example would be when I was doing my undergrad in math and physics, my mother certainly didn't understand what that would mean. So sometimes she would see newspaper ads saying, oh, you only need two years of college and you can go and be this type of technician. Maybe you would like to do that. You know, she thought it'd be really cool if I worked at the Eye Institute as a technician. So I was getting pushed sometimes towards the medical field on that side, but definitely not towards even finishing my undergraduate degree. What do they think of your career now? Um, I think they think it's pretty cool. Um, my father definitely likes the fact that I get to work on cool radiation machines. I don't think they necessarily understand it to that ex the same extent that we do as engineers and scientists, but um, I think he sees that I contribute to society. My mother died when I was a master's student, mm. so it's not that she ever saw me doing this, but I think she would be proud. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I think your job is cool in the sense that um, I, I, most people have someone in their family afflicted with cancer or has to go through radiation. So it's very tangible, you know, so, I mean, my research is really in the lab base. So many years away from affecting patients, sometimes you have to build up all these levels of, uh, you know, um, logic of how this, if this goes right and that goes right, then eventually this could be a drug in 20 years. Um, but you're, you know, working with patients every day, doing a very practical thing. Um, that must feel pretty rewarding. It's definitely the most rewarding aspect to be able to see the patients that we're helping every day or to make decisions on that minute timeline scale, knowing that my expertise is really helping that patient. Um, and that's, uh, like you said, it's very tangible. It's also something that I like being able to be the physicist who steps away. Um, our therapists, who are the ones who are pressing the buttons every day, they see the patients every single day, and I could not do their job. I tell them at least every week that I, I wouldn't be able to handle that emotional burden of seeing patients um, every day. You are actually focusing, uh, as you described in your talk this morning, on a really particular type of, of radiation, uh, which is proton therapy. So maybe you can break down... Uh, what specifically is different about that compared to, you know, the kind of general idea of, okay, we're shining some sort of high energy light to kill these tumors. Um, what's unique about proton therapy? Yeah. So one of the things that makes proton therapy more, well, advantageous for some of our patients is that the protons stop at a finite range in our patients. When we use electrons or photons, they're scattering through our patients. And, you know, like an x-ray, a lot of them are exiting our patients. So that you're going to have this low-dose bath that goes through the patient and is treating, to some extent, healthy tissue 
With protons, we really have that promise of being able to deliver most of the radiation to the area we'd like to be treating. So it cannot necessarily be more conformal than our photons or electrons, but what we have the ability to do is to really give zero radiation dose to some parts of our patients that are very near to the tumors. So what kind of patients do you treat? What's a typical kind of cancers or, you know, how developed are they? Yeah, what's the kind of... Yeah, so um, for our patients, for protons, it's really our pediatric patients who are going to benefit the most. The reason for that is that they're growing, they have um, a long life ahead of them, and they don't want to have any secondary cancers. The other patients that would benefit from protons are really any other areas where we want to have more dose sparing. So the brain is really a great disease site that we're treating. And in radiation oncology, we really are treating a wide variety of patients. We treat patients with prostate cancer. We treat patients with breast cancer, lung, liver, and pretty much anywhere in the body. But it's always in combination with surgery, chemotherapy, and it's a very integrated approach towards treating our patients. And one thing I really hope that I illustrated today was that we're always catering our plans to our patients. They're very tailored to the patients and um, not just in terms of the patient's disease, but the patient's anatomy and how that anatomy is changing with treatment. Yeah, one thing that struck me is you mentioned it could take up to three weeks of planning per patient, um, you know, 40 to 50 hours, I think you said, in some in some of the more extreme cases of literally just tailoring that single plan for that single patient before you ever turn on the beam, um, which seems really like a huge investment. Um, how, how different are the are, are, is it from patient to patient? And what are some of the things you actually have to, to do to tailor the treatments? Yeah, absolutely. So th- the plans that are the most complex are the ones where maybe we want to give a higher radiation dose. So sometimes we'll want to give a radiation dose of about 50 gray, and that's our unit of radiation dose deposited per unit mass. Some ca- cases we'd like to go as high as 70 or 80 gray. So one of them is how high we want to go. And as we're going into higher radiation doses, we really want to ensure that we're not giving healthy organs those high radiation doses as well. So the proximity to different um, healthy structures, if we have a tumor that is right next to the brainstem, we want to give a maximum dose of the tumor and spare as much of the brainstem, if not all of it. So that's really one of the things that we're optimizing. And when we're doing these treatment plans for our patients, it's never just one we're Many times we'll be working on one and then we'll have an idea for something that might be completely different, different beam angles, different energies. Sometimes we'll switch between different particles, between photons and protons. And so it's really all of these decision processes going into it. Um, And then at the end of the day, it really is the physicians, those radiation oncologists that are making that decision about which treatment plan we're going to be delivering. But it might have something Part of the decision-making process may also be the age of the patient, or we had an example where we wanted to do more hippocampal sparing to really preserve their memory, and that was something that one plan did better than the other. But that was a plan that our dissymmetrist spent probably 40-plus hours on. Wow. Uh, Yeah, another thing you you showed really cool images up in your talk were these kind of giant brass uh, pieces that you have to insert into the beamline, which you literally have to machine out and shape in the size of the tumor that you're trying to to ablate. What's that process like? Yeah, so the brass apertures are really used for double scattering or whenever we're looking to get a super sharp aperture because that physical aperture, as you know from optics, it's it's hard to beat. 
So the process for getting those made is really that after we're done these many hours of optimization, we send a millable file to our machinists and that machinist would actually then spend all of those hours cutting it and tailoring it to it. And as you can imagine, if our patient's anatomy changes or if we have any changes that we want to make to this treatment plan, we're going back and remilling these brass apertures. Um, our therapists are lifting them every day when we're treating with double scattering, but it's absolutely um, something that is able to spare our patients' healthy organs. Yeah, one of the the angle of your talk, or the title even, was about using engineering approaches to um, make these uh, radiation therapies more efficient or solve some longstanding problems. And one of the applications that struck me was um, talking about the need to daily uh, to have daily verification on, on your beam and using this extremely expensive, I think you said 250K device. Um, and you sort of led a team to um, create a 3D printed version of this that's very inexpensive. Um, that basically recapitulates these <laughs> this very expensive device. Um, so, you know, with that example and, and beyond, how do you sort of see the role of engineering in the field of radiation oncology? I think radiation oncology is a field where if we weren't partnering with engineers, we would be at a standstill. And I'm very happy with all of the advances we've made over the last 10 or 20 years but I can only start to imagine how we could continue to make these plans better for our patients, make the delivery better for the patients. And I think the role of engineers is to really partner with clinicians, understand that there could be something like a 3D printed phantom that an engineering group could do very, very easily, but it's beyond the scope maybe of a clinician. And these partnerships, these handshakes are really how I see engineering pushing the field forward. Some of our proton systems that we're working on right now are absolutely wonderful feats of engineering. We have these 250 mega electron volt proton accelerators that we rotate around our patients. There is massive amount of engineering that goes into that. And I would say that that's a 90% solution because at the end of the day, when the company hands that off to us, we're treating the patients every day and from day one, we're always thinking of ways we can make it better. We may not have the means to do it on a day-to-day -day basis, but I think by partnering with engineering, we really can do that. Yeah, one really awesome thing about proton therapy is that um, the way you create the protons is not trivial. So these are taking these giant beam lines. Uh, can you describe a little bit about what that entails? Yeah, absolutely. So in proton therapy, we're using cyclotrons, synchrotrons, or synchrocyclotrons to accelerate protons to very close to the speed of light. So to get about 30 centimeters of depth in our patients, we need energies of 232 mega electron volts. So just having that cyclotron alone, these are full on physics cyclotrons, right? Um, the one that's used at UC Davis to treat eye tumors is going to 67 MeV, and that was an original Lawrence cyclotron that has done a lot of the nuclear nuclear physics work. So there's that aspect. In a multi-room center, when we're going to direct the beam line to many rooms, we're monitoring and doing energy selections. We have bending magnets, we have quadrupoles and dipoles that are bending the beam that are also doing the energy selection. We're putting degraders in there. 
And then at the end, it's come, the beam is coming out of the nozzle directed at our patient with millimeter accuracy, and we want to get that radiation dose to within, ideally, 1% or 2%. So the engineering that goes into that at every single level is truly amazing. Yeah, you talked about um, these multi-room centers where you have basically one cyclotron source or whatever the source may be you're kind of picking off this beam to, to, to multiple rooms but then you show this brand new room that you've got set up at, at utah that's a single room it looked like straight out of the deck of you know a star trek <laughs> a ship um what's so advantageous about this these new single single rooms the really big advantage to the single room is that it makes proton therapy accessible for patients across the united states we no longer need to have a 60,000 square foot facility that costs 150 or $200 million with a dedicated team of engineers, therapists, physicians, and physicists. We can now have a room that just kind of piggybacks onto a typical radiation oncology department. The price tag is still in the tens of millions of dollars, but that's far more approachable for a center such as Utah. And then with the cost being less of overhead, we can also not have a push to treat 40 or 50 patients a day on these systems. We can really treat the 10 or 15 patients in our local area that would benefit the most from proton therapy. Those rooms also had uh, CT scanners, I believe, at the same time. So a big um, part of of the the challenges of your job is to do that imaging, to to look at the tumor, see if any changes are happening, and then immediately come and, and focus your beam on there or near immediately. Um, is that the way that you see this field shaping up, more imaging, more side-by-side -side sort of things like that? Absolutely. So not only more imaging to look inside the patient, but more surface imaging to monitor our patients. Ideally, we'd like to be able to image and treat and know that we're treating the patient in exactly the same position. But it takes a few minutes to go from imaging, reviewing the images, and then bringing the patient back to the treatment position and ideally, we'd like to have a way to really verify that that patient is still where we want them to be. And we're using immobilization devices, but anyone who's been told to stay still knows exactly how much motion you can have while still pretending to stay still. Yeah, or having to hold their breath or these other challenges. Absolutely. Coaching our patients into holding their breath while we're giving them radiation therapy is a challenge. And I really, really am grateful that our patients are partners with us on that. So how common is, pro is proton therapy in, in the field of radiation in general? I'd say it's becoming more common because it's becoming more available. So it was really in, if we were to look at the 1990s, proton therapy was available at Mass General and Loma Linda in the United States. And MD Anderson came on shortly after that. And UC Davis had ocular proton therapy treatments. So there were really only a handful of proton therapy centers um, across the United States at that point. But since the mid-2000s, 2010s, and even now, we have 40 proton therapy centers across the United States. So it's really becoming a lot more available. Patients no longer have to travel across the country to receive this type of treatment. So it's really complementary to a typical radiation therapy um, okay, one thing I wanted to ask you about was the the work your your team is doing on um, on measuring the fetal dose. So some of your patients could be pregnant and have a brain tumor and they could really benefit from proton therapy. So what are some of those challenges and how's your team trying to address that? Yeah, so in radiation therapy, we really get the patients that come to us. And 
Sometimes our patients will benefit from treatment immediately and waiting nine months is not an option for them. With protons on some of the older double scattering systems, we knew that the neutron dose was too high. It was above what was an acceptable threshold for a fetal dose. On some of the other pencil beam scanning systems, we knew that by taking those brass apertures out and by not having all of those scatterers in the beam creating that neutron dose, that the neutron dose was far less. On our current system, we had no idea. It's not something that we can get from our simulations because as amazing as Monte Carlo is, the neutron um, cross-sections are really inadequate at that point. So what we had to do was we had to think about what kind of patient we would be treating if they were pregnant. So we came up with an idea of looking at a brain tumor and that was really something that we that came to us in the clinic. We had a pregnant patient that we were asked if we could treat them safely. And we looked at all of the beam arrangements that we would choose for this patient, and we looked at appropriate distances. So we were using anthropomorphic phantoms, so essentially solid water, which is a plastic that mimics water, which, mm. yeah, I know, not ice. Today I learned, yeah. <laughs> yes, so it's a proprietary material. So we use solid water that really mimics our patients, and we use the neutron detector, and we put that at different areas as we deliver these radiation beams to our phantom. So what we found was that, first off, like other forms of proton therapy, a direct vertex field pointing at where the fetus would be is not advisable. That was the one that contributed the most to the radiation dose. But really by taking a straightforward engineering approach of designing the problem, finding out how to test it, and setting those parameters, we were able to come up with some very clear guidelines for how we would treat the next pregnant patient that comes up. So we'd avoid vertex fields, and we would also avoid using the dynamic apertures, which increase the neutron dose, and we would also collimate the beam so we wouldn't have more neutron dose created inside the patient. Cool. So is this a reality now? Can you do this? Kind of Absolutely. It's one where we now have a clear recommendation for how we would treat the next patient that shows up like this. Cool. You mentioned in your talk that you got your degree originally and then basically got a job as a medical physicist right out of the gate. Um, what was that like? It was terrifying. Um, so as background, I did medical physics at McGill, and it was a phenomenal program where we did a lot of clinical practicums. We learned a lot about the accelerators. And when I joined the team at the um, Gatineau Hospital, it was a French language hospital. They were looking to hire new, two new physicists. And when myself and my colleagues showed up as their new physicists, the other physicists actually left for summer vacation. <laughs> so we had, I had two weeks of experience on the job and my colleague had about four weeks and we were left in charge of the department. And while we knew the basics of how everything worked, it was not the value that I can now contribute knowing you know, intimately how accelerators work and what are our true goals. Um, it was also a role where I talked about the importance of treatment planning and before residencies, physicists were expected to approve or critique treatment plans without knowing how to do them themselves. And it's really nice to be able to offer the advice, have the physics background of how to improve it and know that I could do it myself as well. So at that time, you decided to go back to school? I did. So at that time, I, um, I really looked around and I thought, well, what would I like to achieve? 
what would I enjoy the most in studying? And I'm one of the people who I hadn't written my GREs. I had actually missed all of the deadlines. <laughs> and I wrote Simon Cherry an email and said, I think it'd be a great fit for your lab. Um, and I was really fortunate that he agreed. Um, I would also say I made the decision to come to a biomedical engineering department because that's yeah, where here, the research at UC was. Davis. Yeah, absolutely. Here at UC Davis. <laughs> because at the time I was 26 and I thought radiation detectors were super cool. I still do. Um, and then I wanted to come and work here, but it meant changing fields. I had to take the biology related courses and I didn't even take high school biology. Wow. Um, but it was a very interesting. I think it, or actually I'll back up and I'll say it wasn't, it's been something that's really allowed me to have a different career path than a typical medical physicist because I've stepped away from being purely clinical and I've had that engineering background. It also means that I'm always looking for how I can make things better. So what was your thesis project working in Simon's lab here? Oh, I got to build cool detectors. <laughs> so I did both Monte Carlo simulations and detector development for positron emission tomography, really focusing on improving the spatial resolution and simultaneously improving the sensitivity for small animal pet. And so the basics were Monte Carlo simulations, great experimental design, and a lot of time looking at how radiation interacts in matter, because that really is how the detectors work as well as what we're doing with our patients. Yeah, it's it's so cool how deeply your field, um, while being extremely medical, has this deep physics connection. Um, unlike, you know, I think people can have very be very complicated surgeons and do insane biological things and really have no need for physics. But uh, in radiation oncology, they're tied together so uh, intrinsically. It's, um, it's a field where I do truly feel that every day I show up at work, I have to be thinking about Compton and photoelectric and multiple Coulomb scattering. And I don't know that there would be another clinical job where I would get to have these thought processes every single day where I still get to go back to that kind of fundamental physics background. So when you're in grad school here, what are you thinking you're going to do after? Were you thinking that far ahead or knowing you're going to go be a work in the clinic directly? Or were you thinking, I'm going to go work on detectors? Or was there any deep thought? I would say there probably wasn't. I think I was really lucky and I loved the work I was doing here. I knew that there were other options available to me because I had a medical physics background. I would also say that when I was here, I really tied myself into the radiation oncology department, even when I was a biomedical engineering student. So I went to their journal clubs. I went to the physics um, lab meetings, or I guess it was journal clubs and residency meetings as well. And I had the chief physicist from radiation oncology on my qualifying exam committee, somebody who kept an eye on the clinic and also mentored me when I was making that pathway or finding the path back to radiation oncology. So you graduated, and then what did you do? Oh, um, actually, Dr. Badawi hired me immediately, or I guess the Department of Radiology hired me immediately, which was fantastic. And so I did spend a few months working over in radiology at UC Davis Medical Center. I got to work on commissioning CT scanners and work on their SPECT CT systems there. and. 
I think I'm very fortunate. I have a very full life. But my husband at the time, who's also a scientist, found out he was going to be transferred either to Boston or St. Louis. And we had to make the decision to either go to Boston, St. Louis, or stay in California, but be looking for another job for him. So at that time, I applied to one residency program, which was Harvard. And um, I was also too pregnant to go for the interviews. <laughs> and they, um, but they agreed with my viewpoint, which is that medical physics needs great engineers. So so you got in, you got matched to that? Were they doing matching systems? They at were that not time? doing matching okay. systems at the time. Um, they had a gentleman's agreement at the time, which was that all the offer letters would come out on exactly the same day. I see. And I don't think any department followed the gentleman's agreement. All of them came out a week or two before. <laughs> but then they're all equal because they all come out a week before. Exactly. <laughs> they're all cheating the system. Um, what is a residency? What, what was it like for you, for people that, that, that may not um, know exactly what that entails? Yeah, so really the purpose of residency is to train the medical physicist to be proficient in every aspect of the clinic that they will be encountering to really go from being a, a junior physicist who may know something about radiation oncology to being an expert who can advise our physicians and really be a partner in the clinic. I chose to do a three-year residency and... For me, that was one year of a postdoc research year where I was also taking classes. So I had to take anatomy classes. I had to take more physiology. Um, the anatomy was a little bit different than what we took here. It was CT-based anatomy. I had to take a lot of radiation biology-related classes. And then I had two years of really getting exposed to anything that one might encounter in radiation oncology physics. So that was working as a dosimetrist during the day, doing treatment plans for patients as they were coming up. It was doing quality assurance on accelerators after hours. Um, our accelerators are very expensive pieces of equipment, so we don't get to work on them between the hours of pretty much seven to six. It's all after hours work. And really learning all of the different techniques that we can treat our patients with. In the Harvard system, they had the idea that the first clinical year would be the basics, what you would probably encounter if you were going to a smaller clinical center. And the second clinical year was really specialties. So I got to, on my second clinical year, do a lot of brachytherapy. So that's using internal radiation therapy sources to deliver very conformal treatments to our patients. Um, I got to do a month of outreach where I went to a small clinical center and worked essentially as a medical physicist would, but during residency with all the resources that a resident had. And then I also got to learn more about proton therapy, which has become my specialty. So I had a few months of working in proton therapy before I even was out in my first clinical job. Okay, so you're done with your residency. Um, what, what were the next steps? I think I've probably held more faculty positions in radiation <laughs> oncology than anyone else my age. Um, so the next step was I moved to the University of Washington in Seattle, where I was a proton therapy physicist, also got to do some research work on their neutron beam line. They actually treat patients with neutrons there as mm. well as protons, photons, and electrons. And then after that, I went back to Mass General, worked as a proton therapy physicist there for a while, came back to UCSF, covered all aspects of radiation therapy, covered the ocular beam line here at UC Davis, commissioned a bunch of new true beams, had a really great experience, taught some courses in their nuclear engineering department with UC Berkeley, actually. And then I've since moved to the University of Utah. 
And a lot of these moves have been a balance of really looking at what my academic goals are. I want to contribute to science. I love contributing to great clinical care. Just hit my knee. But also looking at how to balance having that with a family and a partner who's also a scientist. And I think with Utah, we've finally found a place where we can stay. And nice. that'll be really great. So you started there in 2021, correct? Um, and then your previous position was a couple of years, in, you know, right as the pandemic is taking off. Um, obviously, the incidences of cancer aren't changing. Patients have to be treated. What was that like? How did the pandemic affect kind of your daily, you know, workflow? I'd say the biggest thing is, is that in radiation oncology, I think we have a culture of trust and verify. I trust that the other physicists on my team know what they're doing, but I will always verify it. We'll always work together as a team to ensure that we're not overlooking anything or nothing's been forgotten. And this is how we treat our patients safely and effectively. And I think with the pandemic, one thing that really happened was that we were asked to stay and work remotely as much as we could. And that got rid of that um, team environment. And when you're working by yourself, it's a lot more um, intense. It's a lot, you have to really be confident in every decision you make because you can't make a, a mistake. On calibrating an accelerator, for example, it's very easy to miscalibrate one, and then every patient treated on that accelerator would be mistreated. So that level of um, trust in your colleagues and in yourself really has to be there. I'm fortunate I had all of the training to be able to work independently, but it was really going from a very collaborative team environment to working much more independently. The other thing is that um, with the pandemic, we had a lot of precautions that drew out our days. We're doing a lot more, um, a lot slower procedures, making sure that the patients aren't necessarily passing each other in the hallways. And that made the days very, very long for our therapists and for our whole team. And then finally, one other thing is that our residents who were training on the job and who were really giving them the promise that they can work alongside us, we've really to a certain extent robbed them of that experience. And it's been really challenging for how to mentor remotely when it's such a tactile experience. Wow. Um, so switching gears a little bit, um, what would people be surprised to know about you outside of your, your day job, some interests? Oh, I, I, I think there's no surprises with me. Um, for anyone who was at my talk today, I put hiking pictures of my family and I into a scientific talk whenever I have the chance. Um, but definitely my interests outside of work are I love being outdoors. I grew up in a very rural environment and being able to go camping, hiking, skiing are things that really um, make me happy and I feel very replenished afterwards. I'd say um, we had the good fortune of bringing our children on some very long backpacking trips. So last year they were uh, eight and 10 and they did 70 miles with us in the high Sierras backpacking. Yeah. But we've been doing long backpacking trips with them since they were four years old, which has been a lot of fun. And probably the surprise would be that um, I'm an avid knitter. I really enjoy knitting. And um, it's been something that I've been doing since I was a very small child. What's the last thing you, you knitted? Oh, I knit some really awesome multicolor mittens out of scraps I had. <laughs> nice. 
Well, I always like to finish up by asking our guests, what's the last great thing that you watched or read? Could be science, could be something else. Well, for I love reading, and I'm currently reading um, The Deathly Hollows with my 11-year-old, so that is obviously a great book. And then um, for the last great book I've read is I've re recently reread Into Thin Air by John Krakauer, which is a fantastic book um, that really details a disastrous Everest expedition. But I think there's a lot of ties into modern life and decision making. And it's a book that I would recommend to almost anyone. I'll have to check it out. Great. Well, thank you so much for, for joining us on, on the podcast. Um, where could people find you if they wanted to connect further? Probably in the mountains in Utah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I actually, I, I'm not on Twitter. I'm not on Instagram. But I think if you were to look at the University of Utah's Radiation Oncology Department, you'd find my information there. And it would be sarah.stjames, all one word, at hci.utah.edu. Great. Thanks so much.